Hey guys, it's Alana and you're listening to Seeing Other People Unfiltered. Each Thursday on Unfiltered, I'll be bringing on a different anonymous guest to open up about their real life dating experiences. We'll discuss what they went through or are going through, how they navigated it, what they've learned, and what advice they have to anyone else going through something similar. Unfiltered is your reminder that no matter what you're going through, you're not alone. If you have a topic that you'd like to discuss on Unfiltered, please email your story to seeingotherpeoplepodcast at gmail.com to be considered for an episode. Real people, real stories, real life. This is Seeing Other People Unfiltered. So I am anonymous. I am 29 years old. I live in New York City. And I wanted to talk about a relationship that I had and specifically my experience dating somebody with addiction, mostly to alcohol. Thank you so much for, you know, reaching out and and being open to talking about this. I imagine, I know we'll get into it, but I imagine that this is something that a lot of people do go through and don't really talk about because they don't know how to talk about it. They don't know who to talk about it with. And, you know, just for anyone who's listening, like you're not alone. And regardless of what side of this you're on, whether you are the person who is struggling with addiction and dating somebody else or not dating, or you're somebody who is dating somebody with addiction. Like I, I just definitely want to emphasize that like you're not alone and there are other people who have been through this. So I really appreciate you being here and being willing to share what you've been through. Yeah. I mean, there are definitely so many people that go through it and everyone's experience is very different. So I would caution to take any blanket lessons from my experience. Um, but I definitely learned a lot and I, I work now in the mental health field. So I kind of consider myself somewhat of an expert on this, but that expertise is so different from the lived experience. And over the eight years that I dated this person, I learned so much. And I think not until the end did I even realize really the effect that it had on, on him and on our relationship and on me. So that's why I wanted to talk about it. Yeah, I'm sure. And I know we'll get into it later, but I do have some listener questions. And I'm really glad that you're somebody who has both, you know, experienced this just as a regular person, but you do have that expertise because of your career path. So you are actually pretty well equipped to answer some of these questions. So um, I'd love to, you know, just get into it and start with how you met this person and how your relationship progressed. Sure. So we met as sophomores in college. We went to the same college and we met at a frat party. We had a bunch of mutual friends. And I think as some context, I would share that the town that I'm from uh, has pretty prevalent underage drinking. And I have two older brothers. So from the time I was in middle school, we had parties at my house. It was a scene I kind of jumped into in high school. And I never really loved drinking. So it wasn't something that I gravitated to, it just kind of was around me. And I always kind of had this cognitive dissonance between what I wanted to do and the fact that everyone around me was blacking out every weekend or trying to, or just drinking all the time. So when I started dating my ex, the fact that he was drinking a lot did not seem abnormal at all. And I think a lot of people probably understand that just from college culture and Greek life in particular. And so I didn't pick up on that. I would say even until the end of college, I didn't think that his behavior was abnormal at all. So we started dating. He was my first really serious boyfriend. 
and everything was really great. Um, I was going to say except for the drinking, but even including that, because it was not really an issue in the first few years. There were a few incidents where he would drink too much, he would throw up, or he would kind of lock me out of his dorm when he would be expecting me and things like that, but nothing really serious. So the first time that I thought maybe he might have a genetic predisposition to alcoholism or something like that was when he told me that his parents are both sober and they've been sober for about 10 years. But I thought that was great. And I still think it's great. Um, I think it's really admirable. And I thought, you know, it's great because he has these influences in his life. And so if it becomes a problem for him, he can always turn to them. He has a good relationship with his parents. And so it didn't, I wouldn't say it was a red flag. If anything, it was a green flag at the time. Quick question, just to, you know, paint this picture for those who are unfamiliar with like big party schools and Greek life culture, like what was the, you know, pattern or habit of drinking? Good question. And it's so funny because I I think I assume it's everywhere. And as you get older, you realize your experience is not the same as everyone else's. So at my college, Greek life was uh, a very large part of the social scene. So I would say most people who went out would ultimately join a house. And when you go through recruitment, as um, especially as a woman, they say, you know, you can't talk about beer or boys. It's not about alcohol. It's not about meeting boys. But then as soon as that whole thing is over, that's 100% what it's about. It's right? everything. Yeah. Every weekend you have mixers where, you know, a frat mixes with a sorority and there's alcohol. I mean, there's always alcohol. There's never a party without alcohol. And usually at my school, the frats would host them. Uh, actually, our sororities weren't allowed to. So we would either have more casual mixers. And usually people would go out on Thursday, Friday, Saturdays. There's definitely, I went to a really big school. So there was definitely always something going on every day of the week. And I personally didn't go out um, every day. <laughs> I would probably go out once, like one day of the weekend. But my boyfriend, for example, was going out probably three days a week. And then he sophomore year, which was the year that we met, he was uh, living in the fraternity. And so it's kind of always present, even if you, you know, let's say he was deciding to stay in and study, there may be a party going on downstairs. And and like I said, like a lot of people are drinking really to black out, you know, it's not everybody, but uh, I, there was a point in the last four years for me where one of my friends said to me, um, I think you would enjoy alcohol a lot more if you just had a couple glasses of wine. And it wasn't about the fact that I would always drink to excess, but I, I felt as though that was the only option because everyone around yeah. me was binge drinking, you know, showing up at eight, 9 PM and then drinking until two in the morning. And yeah. to be clear, this yeah. was completely 1000% my college experience as well. Yeah. Uh, you know, keg stands, shots, all of that good stuff. Yeah. Got it. So, okay. So it was a lot of participating in all of this, but, and I totally understand how at the time, you know, it doesn't seem like a problem because for the most part, everybody's doing it. Yeah. And even the nights where he would be particularly drunk, I would see that happening to my roommates, my friends, you know, my guy friends. And I wouldn't say it happened to him more than them. Yeah. <laughs> so 
so yeah, like I said, un- until the end of college did not come up as a real red flag for me. So we graduated. We both moved to New York together. Um, I started medical school. We were not living together at the time. And he started working in banking and drinking was a big part of that. And he he's from a town where not a lot of people from his high school went to college. Um, his parents didn't go to college. And so he really always saw himself as kind of striking out on his own and drinking was kind of always a part of that. It was how he met people through his frat. He got his first job through his frat. And then it was a big part of taking clients out at his first job. And so it was really hard to look at that and say drinking is a bad thing because it was kind of a part of his success. And however, at that point, he had acknowledged that he felt like it was harder for him to control himself when he was drinking compared to other people. So at a point, he actually said, I don't think this is a healthy job for me to be in. And he quit and went back to school for computer science. Wow. Yeah. And I I was so proud of him at that point because I thought that was really admirable. He didn't really have his family to fall back on financially. It was really taking a chance on himself. And, uh, and he did it. And, and then he got a job doing that. We eventually moved in together. And the incidents that had happened became more frequent. And, you know, it started to come up as a more serious problem, both from my perspective, and I think from his perspective, there were a few times where he told me, he would just start crying out of nowhere and we would, you know, I would have no idea what, what was wrong and he would not really be able to talk about it being related to alcohol. But in retrospect, that's always what it was related to. It would be him stressed about going to an event or something like that. So I really wanted him to get help and I didn't know what that necessarily looked like at the time, but I could tell that it was a problem for him. And at first I just wanted to kind of explore how big of a problem it was. And so I would give him these, I'll call them challenges, but they were really ultimatums, which I hate, but I didn't really know what else to do. And so he would be sober for a month and, and he would do it. And then he would drink again and I would be like, okay, great. And then a few months later, something really bad would happen. And he would never, it was never so bad that like he would never be violent. He would never be verbally abusive, anything like that. And I think if that had been the case, I would have broken up with him a lot sooner. But when he was drunk, he would just get really sweet and cuddly. And sometimes he would pass out. So, and he, and nothing ever really dangerous happened. Like it wouldn't, he wouldn't pass out at a party. He would get himself home, but it would just be too much. And sometimes he would say, kind of silly things at a party that would be kind of embarrassing for me. And then I would have to do damage control. And then the next day we would talk about it and he would be embarrassed, but he was, but he wouldn't remember it. So he was kind of not living Mm -hmm. it the way that sometimes I was even more than he was because I was sober enough to remember. It's interesting because, you know, you hear that like, Oh, like he would get super drunk and be like super sweet and cuddly. It's like, a lot of people wouldn't think of that as like a major red flag as opposed to like, Oh, I could get drunk and be violent. You know, like that's what would immediately throw up the flags and make somebody say like, this is a problem. And I, I imagine that made it 
more difficult to say like there's something really not okay here. Yeah. And I mean, there were a few times where it did very much affect me. For example, getting, I mentioned this in college, but there was a a bigger time where he locked me out of his apartment and I was on the streets in Brooklyn with nowhere to sleep. And I, at the time was not living in the city. So I had to stay with a friend, but it was like three in the morning and I was really mad at him, but I still felt like he had just done something stupid. I didn't think that it was a hundred percent related to the drinking. And again, in retrospect, I think he was really suffering with really struggling with it more than I was at that time, because I think he knew that it all stemmed from the beginning of the night where he, and he would tell me this, he would say, you know, we go out, you're focused on your friends and what you want to do and where you want to go. And all I can think about is my next drink. It's always my goal throughout the night is to have another drink. So that's the way in which it affected me, but it was kind of infrequent, like something like that would happen every three months. And in between, he was the most amazing boyfriend. Like he was so supportive of me. Uh, He was working really hard, doing really well. He was a really good friend to his friends. He was a really good son and all of those things. So time passed and again, these things would happen. And then eventually we moved in together. And honestly, it was great. We lived together for two years and I don't want it to get lost in all of the negative things I say that 90% of the time our relationship was great. Maybe that's obvious because it lasted so long, but he, I would kind of make these ultimatums as things seem to get serious with his drinking. And I would say, you know, I, I don't think drinking is great for you. And I was also totally prepared to be sober for the rest of my life. I mean, I drink socially for sure, but I felt like things would be easier if he gave it up completely. And he always felt like he wanted to drink in moderation and that would allow him to still go out and be around it. And it just didn't work. And it was kind of obvious to me at a certain point that he wasn't able to do it in moderation. But I also felt like he had to do things his own way to a point. So... Mm -hmm. Would you guys ever, you know, just like sitting at home, like have a glass of wine? Like, was that ever something that was doable? So that's not really my thing. Um, I think because I drink so much socially and I don't like it, I'm like, let's cut it out. Yeah, other times. Right. And he wouldn't really do that either. Um, He was a big foodie, so he really appreciated certain drinks that would go with certain foods and he would cook for me all the time. And so in, in that kind of situation, he would cook for me maybe twice a week. And when he did, he might have a drink with it that would kind of pair with it. And that was also something that would happen when we would go traveling. He would have not been drinking for a couple of months. And then I remember this is kind of specific. I'm trying to avoid too many specifics, but we were in Peru and I got a Pisco Sour and he got one and he was like, when else am I going to be in Peru drinking a Pisco Sour? And I, I really didn't like that he was having the drink because we hadn't had a conversation about it and decided that he would start drinking again. But I felt so bad because I was in this cultural situation and once in a lifetime kind of trip. And so things like that, um, I did have a bottle of wine and this is something that I just feel so stupid in retrospect, not realizing, but I had a bottle of wine that I was saving once for 
an event or to go to a friend's house or something and bring it. And, and I went to, to, to get it and bring it to wherever I was going and it was gone. And I asked him and he said, Oh, sorry, I drank it. And I was so mad because I really didn't want to have to run out and be late for my dinner and get another bottle. And I, I just thought it was really inconsiderate of him to drink it without asking me. And now, and then as time went on, I would look back on that and be like, he could not control himself. It, it wasn't about him just enjoying it with dinner. Like if there was alcohol in the apartment, he would drink it, whatever it was. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. So at what point did things start to really shift to a point where you're like, this is not okay for either of us? So there was a point when we were living together and I found a bunch of empty vodka bottle like those mini vodka bottles in his closet we kind of we kind of shared most of the closets but I was for some reason I found them and I thought that was really weird and I confronted him about it and he kind of shrugged it off and then New Year's of 2020 so going into 2020 this is where it gets fun for everyone, I know. But um, this is really... <laughs> Everything <yeah>. changes. <laughs> yeah. So he actually... We were at a New Year's Eve party and he tried to fight a guy friend of mine. And one of the things that he would do and that he increasingly did in the last year before we broke up was he would project onto me. And he was actually able to identify this when he was sober and kind of own up to it, which is... He would say, you know, I feel like I hide so much of my struggle with drinking from you that you must be hiding something from me too. And so he would accuse me of flirting with other guys or doing these crazy things that had never, ever been an issue for us in the previous seven years. And yeah, so there, like, I have this one really close guy friend has always been a hundred percent platonic still is to this day. And he went up to him and started making motions as if he was trying to fight him. And I kind of had to pull him off and take him home and leave the party early and I was really upset about that. And as usual in the morning, he apologized to my friend and to me. And there were a few other things that happened that I won't necessarily get into because they're all kind of similar. But I just felt like, okay, this is it. He needs to be sober. He can't do this in moderation. And I, I really made the ultimatum and I really meant it. I mean, I... <laughs> I, I felt like I meant it. Like before that I had never actually wanted to break up with him. It had always been a last resort. And at that point I thought I genuinely cannot do this anymore. I deserve better. And, um, I need him to meet me more than more halfway than like, I was always going 90% and he was barely going 10%. And so I actually, after a kind of similar event, I actually kicked him out of the apartment for a night. And part of the reason I wanted to do that was because he also had a lot of trouble telling his friends about his issues. And his friends are some of my really good friends from college too. And I knew that they worried about him too. They had been on a few vacations with him and some things had happened and they would, we would talk about it. And so I wanted him to have to, this sounds kind of fucked up, but no I, wanted, I get it. I wanted him to have to ask them to spend the night so that he would have to tell them how serious things had gotten. 
And I just knew that they were so close that it would be a good thing. And it was, um, he was like, you know, I can't believe my friends still want to hang out with me even if I'm sober and all of the stuff that, you know, I always knew would be true. And he started going to AA. He got a therapist. He got a psychiatrist. It was like everything was falling into place. And then the pandemic happened. So March 2020, uh, all of the AA meeting, and he always hated AA. So that was kind of part of the issue. His parents are pretty involved in it. And, you know, it can be a little bit culty. And I think he really didn't like that. But it was just some... he needed some way to commit to sobriety and he needed to take some of the pressure off of me to be the only person telling him and trying to go in the right direction. And so by him telling his friends and going to meetings and things like that, I felt like finally the weight was a little bit off of my shoulders being the only person. So, you know, he, he kind of worked in the field of cybersecurity. And so everything being online, he was not about, he did not want to do any meetings online. And he, he basically dropped all of those amazing supports that we had put in place, which I understood. And I, I understood at the time. And we went to live at my mom's in the suburbs. So I felt like even though he wasn't engaging in some of those treatments, we and, you know, we didn't really know at first how long we were going to be there. I thought it was going to be a couple of weeks and then it turned into six months. But I thought, you know, in some ways this is perfect. I'm going to be with him 24 seven. I'm going to be able to see what he's doing all the time. And we're not going to have any social events. So he's not going to be peer pressured in any way or through his job or anything like that. So in some ways, this is actually like a social experiment. If he like if he can't do it here, then it's never going right. to work. And. To kind of fast forward through, I, I thought that things were pretty good over the summer. I thought he wasn't drinking and there were probably a few suspicious moments. Like he would go grocery shopping for two hours and I would be like, "What? Well, where were you? And he would say, oh, I went to a few different stores to find the best fish. And I'd be like, okay. But then that would happen a couple of times and I'd be like, there's really no need to do that. Um, or I would think he tasted like wine, but I would say maybe he cooked with a little bit or something like that. And, and I just decided I wasn't going to be paranoid because I had been for so long and I would bring it up with him probably once a week saying like, you know, I know things are really good right now and you're not drinking, but I want to make sure that when things open up again, we have a plan in place so that we don't go back to square one. And he would always kind of shrug me off, which I hated. (laughs) But I, I didn't really know what else to do. And I thought that things were fine. And so I just tried to let him know as much as I could that I supported him. And I even said, you know, if like people relapse all the time, and if that happens, I'm here for you, etc. As long as you're honest with me, like, that's all I ask is that you tell me. So first week of August, I actually went back to work. And it was, it was my first day back in the hospital where I work and I came back and he was basically drunk. And at first I wasn't hundred percent sure, but it became very obvious. And I later found out that he had also taken some Ambien. So he was like completely zonked. And I, I was trying to have this conversation with him that was completely pointless because he was not awake. 
And I just kept asking him, like, were you drinking? What did you do? What have you taken? What's been going on? And he was like, I swear. He kept saying, I swear I didn't drink. And I was so frustrated because I just wanted him to be honest with me. And again, it wasn't the best time for a productive conversation, but I, we had just re-signed a lease in New York. So he slept with me at my mom's house that night. And then I kicked him out and said, you know, go back to New York. I need some space. I need to figure out what's going on if you won't talk to me. And he wrote me a letter the next day and sent it to my email that I like opened while I was at work. It was three pages and it basically detailed all the ways in which he had been lying to me for six months. Um, oh, wow. Which what there were a few other weird things unrelated to the drinking, but I think it all stemmed from the drinking. And the, the long and short of it is that he was drinking and People always ask me, like, how did you not know? You were sleeping in the same bed every night. You were both working from home. And like I said before, I think I just, it's not that I was didn't want to see it or was in denial, but I, there had been so many times where I had found bottles in his bags or things like that. And I just didn't want to be the kind of person who had to do that and go through the trash. Or I just decided that if he would tell me, he would tell me. And if not, I would find out eventually. And I did. So I think I knew I was just so exhausted at that point with the lying. And, and I always said, I always said this to my friends and my family that I really, it wasn't the drinking that bothered me because I felt like we had resources to deal with it. It was the lying because I just felt like we weren't on the same team and he didn't, and it really, you know, hurt my feelings that he didn't trust me enough to be vulnerable with me. And I think I learned over the following months after we broke up more about how uh, characteristic that is for people who struggle with alcoholism to lie just because they're, you know, really lying to themselves about how serious it is and really in denial. But it was hard as a partner to, to cope with it and to know what to do. So I told him we were breaking up and unfortunately it was over the phone because uh, he ended up flying to his parents, which is cross country and looking at rehabs there and the rehab him, he did go to rehab and that was really his decision. I was kind of at the point where I was like, every time you have a slip up, I'm the one making the plan. I'm the one saying you have to do this and this and this. And I was like, I have nothing, do whatever you think is going to be helpful for you. I'm no longer your sponsor or, you know, your, um, I felt like a parole officer a lot of the time because it was like, he was, if he could get away with enough and I, without me noticing, then he was okay. And it was like, I had to right. play detective and figure out whenever it, it had gotten too far. And that's probably a huge part of why like you weren't looking for it, you know, during yeah. those six months living at your parents' place because you didn't want to find it because you didn't, you wanted to feel like a girlfriend, not a parole officer. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that's kind of the end of our story. And I think it's, I think it's just really bittersweet and especially now because I, I felt like I knew at that point that he would not be sober as long as I was with him. And I was kind of enabling him 
by giving him so many second chances. And I felt like my, my first choice, even at that point would have been for him to be sober and us to be together. But the second best option was him being sober and us not being together. And the like unacceptable option was him continuing to drink and it continuing to really affect my life too. And so anyway, I'm not sure if we were together, if he would be sober, you know, I think, I think there's a very high chance that if we had stayed together another year, it would have been another year of back and forth and maybe a month at a time, whatever it was. I mean, that's what had happened for the last, for the previous four years since we had graduated and I had really noticed it was a problem. What were the steps that you took to, you know, process everything? Because obviously this impacted you and, you know, just because you broke up, uh, first of all, you're like grieving the relationship and what you thought was your future. You were together for so long, but also this obviously took a major toll on you too. So how did you, you know, deal with all of it? Yeah. Um, I appreciate that question. I, I don't think I realized until we broke up how negatively our relationship had been affecting me for a year, really, when things started to get really bad. And I really lost trust with him because, I mean, I was devastated and he was my best friend. I mean, we lived together. So there was there were a lot of technical parts of moving out and all of that. And so it was definitely stressful. But in a lot of ways, I was also relieved. And I think I had for so long, I had planned on living an entire lifetime with this person that would involve sobriety, but also relapses. And I was really prepared for that, or I I tried to emotionally and, um, and, and prepare myself for that. And so realizing that I was letting that go was kind of a relief in that I, I didn't have to support him and, and kind of pull him through. And so it was kind of those things at the same time, uh, the feelings of, of being really sad, but also being able to kind of start fresh. And I think that I had, because it had been about a year of me struggling with this decision, I think I had kind of come to terms with it a lot more than obviously he had. And I think he was, kind of in denial of us breaking up for a while. And he was kind of like, oh, let me focus on rehab and all this stuff. And then we can deal with that later. And I was like, that's not really fair to me to, you know, leave it in limbo and it's not what I want. So I, it was really important for me to move out. I mean, he really wanted me to stay in the apartment to try and say, you know, he wasn't disrupting my life, but I really wanted to make a clean break as much as possible. And I really wanted to remain in touch. Um, I mean, obviously I care so much about him and I really wanted to know how things were going, but it was hard to do that without feeling like I was leading him on, especially because he didn't really get it for a long time that it wasn't, this wasn't a break. Cause like we had gone on some kind of mini breaks before, especially early in our relationship. And, uh, And so he would kind of talk about it like it was a break. He'd be like, well, what if you just keep the lease and then I'll come back in three months? And I was like, no, this is it. This is. And I felt really confident of that after a while that 
there was very little question in my head that it would ever be salvageable. And so I was able to process it knowing that and, and not really wondering if we were going to work it out. So I started doing therapy. Um, I actually had, I kind of skipped this part, which is kind of a part of our relationship story too. But early on in college, I had a really bad depressive episode and I did a lot of therapy then. And it hadn't really been, I wouldn't say it wasn't an issue for me, but I guess I would say it's been well controlled. But I think because I had some experience with that early on, I knew what I needed when I go through something really stressful. And so I just immediately made appointments um, for therapy, psychiatry. I I did go on medication for a little bit, but for me, it's kind of like a temporary thing. I don't know. I ended up not staying on it super long, but I felt like I was trying to get ahead of anything that might um, really throw me off. And I was going into my last year of medical school. So I was applying to residencies, which is like a whole other thing. Um, But in a way, it was a fresh start in that sense, too, because I was able to apply to programs on my own and not have to take him into consideration, which had always been a big part of it. And so yeah, I mean, it was really, it was definitely a year of growth. I'm also really lucky to have really great friends and family. And a lot of my friends and family had been trying to tell me for a while that they were really worried about him. And I wouldn't say that they wanted me to break up with him or that they didn't like him because they did love him as a person and they could see how happy he had made me for so long. But they definitely expressed their concerns, especially in the last year. And so, I mean, they were just really important supports for me at that time. I remember probably six months before we broke up, one of my good friends from childhood took me out to lunch and said, she she really kind of like looked me in the eyes and was like, I think you should break up with him. I don't think it's this is good for you and it's not going to end well. And... I just remember looking at her and she wasn't dating anyone at the time. And I thought, you are so jealous of me. (laughs) And I can't believe that you would manifest that jealousy as like not wanting me to be happy and me and wanting me to end this relationship. And it must be so obvious to you how happy we are. And so that's the most absurd thing. And yeah, in retrospect, she was 100% right, as she usually is. It's funny how our brains tell us what we want to hear, not yeah. what we need to hear sometimes. Yeah. And she, and I mean, same friend, my ex called her the day after we really broke up and it will, it was, it was the day after I had come home to him drinking and everything was kind of starting to blow up and they had like a two hour conversation and she told him, you know, it's not about the drinking, it's about the lying. And that's when he wrote me the three page letter. So I mean, I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful that he was, I think, like, I, I don't know, maybe sometimes he wonders if he hadn't told me all of the details, if, if, they, if I wouldn't have actually broken up with him. But I'm just so glad that I know and that I got the whole story. And there were so, you know, there were so many little things that I now have answers to, like, why were you acting weird that one time? And what were you doing sitting in my car? <laughs> Yeah. And I'm sure getting those details is why you were able to, you know, be firm and strong about breaking up instead of saying, yeah, I'll keep the lease. And in three months when you're back, we'll see. Because I think that 
in my mind, like trying to put myself in your shoes, that would have been the hardest thing for me, like wanting to hold on and wanting to, you know, say what if, and well, maybe it could work. But I think that was like the missing link for you and like really understanding how deep in it everything was and, and how far gone he was and your relationship was. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I also started dating kind of quickly, I think, for considering that it was an eight year relationship. But I think I just I was just curious about I mean, I had never been on any kind of app because we had started dating before they were a thing. And I was kind of in this point of school where I had always been so busy and I had all this free time all of a sudden. And COVID was still definitely keeping things kind of shut down. But I I did start to go on dates that year and that was a big learning experience too. Um, but it also kind of helped me realize that he was not the only person in the world and that it was possible for me to meet other people, which was big. Yeah. I'm really curious about that process of, you know, getting back out there. And this is one of the listener questions that I got, like, how do you, after going through something like this, you know, meet new people and, and, trust them or like learn to trust again and feel that you can, you know, date somebody and not go through this experience. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I know this is something that you've talked about before in the context of cheating or other kinds of lying and that same question. And it was something that I worried about and I talked to my therapist about in the beginning. And then it, kind of similarly to how I chose not to live in a paranoid state while I was dating him, I just chose not to assume the worst in people. And maybe that's easier said than done, but it was a, it was something that I practiced and that I tried to do because I just felt like you have to take people at face value at a certain point. And th- I mean, that was definitely a learning curve in dating with, you know, ghosting and all of the different little facades that we put on when we're dating. Um, But in the grand scheme of things, like even with that, you know, if a guy told me he wanted to see me again, I would assume that he did. And if he didn't text me, I would text him. (laughs) And if he didn't want to see me, I either wouldn't hear from him or, you know, he would send a follow-up text and clarify. And, um, you know, I tried to be the same way. And I guess it's, I would say it's worked out for me. Like, I I don't think that me being a trustworthy person has been to my detriment, I would say. And I even with my ex, I don't think that I was necessarily foolish or um I mean I, I you know, I definitely gave him a lot of second chances and I think a lot of people would have cut things off earlier and maybe you know, I could have started dating someone else sooner, but I don't really have that many regrets in how things went and in how much I tried to salvage uh, what was a really great relationship. Um, I will, I will say that I, I'm, I'm not eager to date someone with substance use issues. And I want to emphasize what I said in the beginning, which is that I don't want everyone to take that away from this because I think that there's a lot of people with, substance use disorders, which is me sounding really clinical when I, when I say it, but pe- people who struggle with addiction to all kinds of things, whether it's food or reality TV or 
or substances um, who are amazing people and they might be at the beginning, middle or end stage of finding sobriety or finding whatever uh, way of living healthy works for them. But, you know, I think everybody is deserving of love and capable of being a really good partner. Um, I did kind of to that point, I went on a date with this guy who I had been trying to set up this date for like a year. We had matched really early on and things always fell through. And then we finally did about a year after my breakup. And he texted me the night before and said, by the way, I want you to know that I don't drink. And I was kind of bummed because I was really excited to meet him. And I knew that that would probably be a deal breaker for me uh, just because everything with my ex was still kind of raw. <laughs> and uh, but I decided to go on the date anyway, because I didn't, I didn't want to cancel it for that reason. And it was honestly one of the best dates I, I had ever had. He was five years sober. And in some ways, I feel like he is what I hope my, my ex will look like in five years, because he had clearly so come to terms with his sobriety. I mean, we met at a bar, he got a mocktail, I got a cocktail. He very much encouraged me to get a couple drinks that night. And he was just so confident with himself and, and I had so much fun, you know, you don't need to drink to have fun. Uh, and I ended up being really honest with him and he was a really open laid back person. And so we had this really honest conversation about dating and drinking and, I think in another world, you know, he might have been a great person that I would have wanted to get to know more. And I'm still, you know, grateful that that I got to meet him. Um, but I, I want to put that out there for anybody who is considering his sober, you know, is sober curious or is worried about dating and how how involved alcohol is in the dating process. Yeah, totally. And, you know, I'm glad that you had that experience that was so positive and, and hopeful almost where it's like, A, what you said about, I hope this is what he'll look like in five years, but also that you could have this amazing time with somebody who, you know, has gone through all of that. I think that is like a really great takeaway. And I, I think it's also great that like you were honest about how you felt about it. I'm really curious to hear, I know you mentioned this in the beginning and this was, you know, one of my first thoughts when reading your story initially is that difference between going through it versus, you know, being a psychiatrist and working with people who might be talking about it. Like how, what are maybe some things that you didn't expect to feel or to have happened? Um, like what was that like and what are some of those differences? Yeah. So <laughs> I was so sure for so long that if I loved him enough, he would be able to do whatever I asked of him if it was the best for him. You know, if I was able to convince him that not drinking would be would be healthier and and that I would love him through it and all of that. And, you know, I just all I had to do was really be there for him and try and make him be honest with me. And it's just such a powerful disease that, and this is a word that um, they use a lot in AA. And something I didn't mention before is that after the breakup, I, I used a lot of resources from Al-Anon, which is the 
organization that supports um, people who have loved ones who struggling with addiction. And it, that was really helpful for me. So it's another thing that I would recommend to anyone, especially if you're currently <laughs> involved with someone, whether it's a family member or a spouse or whatever. Um, but, you know, they use the word powerless, like you're, you're totally powerless over it. And I think we or I understood that in the sense of from his perspective that he would have to at some point acknowledge that this was kind of out of his hands, but I didn't realize how powerless I was to get him to change and to make him realize, um, you know, kind of overcome his denial and and finally get help. And I, you know, I, I really had to focus on also myself. And I think this is another thing that Al-Anon tries to, to assure people is that when you love someone, especially your partner, um, struggling with addiction, it's so easy to get completely wrapped up in their problems and to forget the influence that it has on you. Um, and, and, you know, like he would always say to me, you don't really get it because you so obviously don't have the same problem. You know, you don't crave alcohol. You could easily go a week without it. You could have a meal without it. You can go out and drink water if you're not feeling like it. And I would say, yeah, you know, I, that's true. And I can't change that. You know, I can't live your experience, but I also want to be here for you. Um, and so, yeah, I was just so, and, and, and I would, I would say, oh yeah, I am grateful that I don't have that problem and that I am able to be the strong one and the sober one and the one who's carrying him home and all of these things. But I really didn't realize until it was over that I had been suffering for the entire time. Like it had been having this huge effect on me. And I do think that my mental health was stronger because of what I had gone through in the past. But if I hadn't necessarily gone through that, I think it could have really dragged me down to a dark place. Um, and I think for a lot of people it does and they don't even realize it because they're so focused on the other person. Yeah. If you didn't already have those tools in your toolkit of how to, you know, do things that you needed in order to feel okay. Um, and I think that's one of the huge reasons why people should go to, you know, therapy before there's a quote unquote problem that sends you there. You know, I, yeah. and I've, I've talked about this before, but I went when I felt like I was completely at rock bottom and I was going like twice a week at first. Cause I, and I just would just sit there and cry the entire time. And it probably took a very long time for it to start being productive. And I wish I had started going long before that, because I'm sure, you know, having those conversations with my therapist could have also prevented it from getting to the level that it did because that person could have helped me identify that there was something greater happening that was not okay for me. Um, but yeah, I think that that makes a lot of sense. Everything you said. So what would you suggest, you know, for somebody who is going through this with their partner where, you know, maybe they're noticing these patterns, they're noticing, that the all the things that you noticed when you thought like you could help try and, and solve it, what should they do? Yeah, so I I mean, 
I would definitely recommend some of the Al-Anon resources. I'm going to sound like a spokesperson for it, but I actually never went to a meeting and their whole big thing is to go to a meeting. And, you know, it's hard in the same way that it's hard to, to do therapy sometimes because it's not easy to access it or people are busy and it can be expensive and all these things. So, but I think any small thing you do, and there's a lot of online resources, um, in the same way that it's helpful for the person struggling with it themselves to just make some kind of small practice of committing to sobriety. I think it's helpful as the partner to make a practice of focusing on how it's affecting you. And that's like one way to do it is by reading some of the Al-Anon stuff. Um, I think that, I mean, every situation is so different, but I think obviously with anything, having the conversation and seeing where the person is at and then getting other people involved. So obviously not sharing their information without their consent, but I think having other people in your life who can support you, um, because it's so much harder when, you know, your, your partner is the only person. And I think that sounds obvious, but we, we place so much value on our significant others in our culture. And I think especially as you get older and, and, you know, people start talking about marriage and all these things and you're living together, like they do become a huge part of your life at the expense sometimes of other relationships. And so it was so important for me to have other people who I could turn to, to give me some perspective and, and in the same way to make sure that he had the same thing. And I think that that's probably the biggest thing that I wish I did sooner was have more conversations with his friends who, like I said, ultimately were so supportive, but that was really almost past the point of things turning around. I mean, he was already in such a bad place when that happened. And I had spent so many years carrying the burden of this entire thing really unnecessarily. Um, I think also with therapy and things like that, we, a lot of the time it's set up so that you're doing it weekly or, um, or like AA, like you're supposed to go to a meeting every week and it can be really overwhelming to commit to. But I think for some people, like my dad, for example, um, he used to go to therapy once a month and he would just call it mental hygiene. And I love that because it's such a smaller commitment, but if you're somebody who isn't really sure if you're going to have to be sober long-term or there's one particular substance you're struggling with and it only comes up, you know, like cocaine at parties and it's a couple times a year, but you, you really get carried away or whatever it is. Like just having someone to check in with who's not your partner, I think is a really good idea. I completely agree. And I love that term mental hygiene. It's like, we take care of all of these other aspects of our lives. We go to the gym, we get facials, we get massages, we get our nails done, like whatever it is. It's like, what about your brain? Cause that controls how you feel and how you feel ends up controlling everything else that's going on in your life. So I love that. Yeah. And I guess to your question about you're asking about me working in the field and how it differs from my personal experience. I mean, I think the biggest, um, misconception I had was that because I have more so-called expertise in this area, I could kind of do it for him. 
but it's a horrible idea. Like, um, in the same way that I don't prescribe antibiotics for my friends because I don't actually know their entire health history and I don't really want to do an entire physical on them every time they ask me for something. So I just blanket don't prescribe things for them. I should not be a therapist for the person who I'm obviously so subjectively biased about because I literally love him, you know, <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Cause I, you know, some of my best friends are therapists and I always wonder like, well, are when I do have like deep conversations with them, are they coming at it from the point, like from the perspective of friend or therapist? And I do think that they do a good job of trying not to play the role of therapist. And I think that that's a really good point. Like it, it's, you might think that, you know, you can, but at the same time, like you're not going to be unbiased. You're not going to be subjective. So I think that's really like a really good takeaway from that. Yeah. And I think there it's a spectrum. Like we, every conversation you have with another person might be a friend. It's kind of like a form of supportive therapy, but it's, it's not a replacement for it. Um, yeah. And yeah, it's just kind of to re- important to remember your boundaries. Absolutely. Well, I cannot thank you enough for being here. I appreciate this so much. And, you know, I am sorry for all everything you went through and how this happened, but it's amazing that you're able to talk about it and look back on it. And um, I think it's there's a lot of power in realizing like things we could have done differently. And so I really appreciate you sharing some of that and um, just having all that hindsight Before I let you go, I do have to ask, what is the best piece of dating advice you've ever received? I knew you were going to (laughs) ask. And I think I came up with something else, but this this is going to be less eloquent, but I think this is one of the biggest lessons that I've learned in my couple years now of dating again that's been most helpful for me um, as somebody who is a really big overthinker. And I guess this kind of relates to what we were just talking about because uh, I tend to approach things as my ex would say clinically (laughs) and analytically. And I think in dating, the logical aspect sometimes is less important and how you feel is the most important. And sometimes you can't fully understand why that is right away. Uh, maybe until later, why you really like someone or why you don't. But I think the whole point of dating is to feel good and to be around someone who makes you feel good. And so I think it's one of the few aspects of our lives in which that really should be the most important thing. Because if you're not happy, or if you're always anxious, or scared, or just feeling not good about yourself or about your partner, then something's wrong or it's not working or it's not the right person. I love that so much. And nobody's ever said that. Yes, And (laughs) that is like the most true concept in the world. And I think it's so true. Like our, our gut tells us things before our brain has been able to process and understand them. And it's so important to feel like something is right or to feel like something is wrong and to listen to that feeling and act on it. Yeah. And before we end, I have to also say thank you because your podcast was also 
really helpful for me. And I mean, there are a lot of great podcasts out there, but I, the, the ones that tend to resonate with me are just like hearing other people's stories. And I, it really did make me feel less alone and uh, to navigate this really crazy scene when a lot of my friends are coupling up and like married <laughs> and I'm just out here figuring it out. So. Oh, I'm so glad that it was helpful and it was there for you. And, you know, that's a shout out to everyone else who's come on an unfiltered episode and been, you know, brave and willing to open up. Like that's, that's all them. That's all them. So I, I appreciate you coming on. And, um, I also just want to reemphasize, you know, what we said at the beginning for anyone else who's going through something like this, like you're not alone and there are resources and I'll definitely link Al-Anon in, in the show notes and, um, yeah, just, you know, for anyone listening, like I'm here for you and feel free to reach out if you need somebody to talk to about it. And thank you guys for listening and anonymous. Thank you again so much for being here. Thank you. All right. To everyone who listened, don't forget to send this to a friend who you think would benefit from hearing it. Share it on your story. If you want your followers to listen and don't forget to give a five-star rating and review if you haven't yet. All right. I will talk to you guys next time.